A few years ago, a mainstream theologian in a liberal university penned an article in a broad-minded publication. It was an article entitled, Discipleship as a Craft, Church as a Disciplined Community. Professor Stanley Hauervoss offered an insightful thesis in this article. He contends that existing in a buyer's or consumer's market, the church has become primarily a caring community led by pastors who become primarily people who care, leading churches whose primary characteristic is that the congregation is friendly. He continues, as the church exists in this buyer's or consumer's market, any suggestion that in order to be a member of a church you must be transformed by opening your life to certain kinds of discipline is almost impossible to maintain. This friendly and caring yet fundamentally undisciplined environment, he writes, quote, lacks the rationale to build the church as a community capable of standing against the powers we confront. This is no fire-breathing conservative. A professor at Duke University. And I think he's right. And for this reason, I rejoice that we're working our way through the book of 2 Timothy as a congregation I rejoice because 2 Timothy is a book that aggressively prepares us to stand in a disciplined manner against the powers we confront in our Christian walk. I pray that we are a friendly church, but that's not what we'll ever be. That's not all that we can be. We must be a disciplined people. And 2 Timothy is not written to coddle Christians content to live their lives on the margins of the faith behind the comfort zone of friendly, culturally respectable religion. We cannot read this book any other way than to know that's not what it's about. Second Timothy, after all, let's remember, was written from a dank Roman prison by a man who was about to be executed for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he's writing to a young man, probably in Ephesus, who was under enormous pressure from false teachers. Timothy facing the unrelenting concern as well that he could be arrested and imprisoned for his faith. So as we've learned, it does not, this book, encourage Christian amateurism or hobbyists. It calls us to sell out for Christ as devoted soldiers to the cause, as disciplined athletes, as hard-working farmers, to give ourselves to the task of being a disciplined community that is enduring and persevering and moving forward for Jesus Christ. Indeed, this is a book fully awake to the reality that we face an incessant demonic attack against our faith on a daily basis. We think of the persecuted church and we know that they are facing physical persecution, physical resistance. And the call there is somewhat different than the challenge that we face, but we face constant pressure to avoid hardship by being ashamed of the Gospel. We have our own battle. We face unrelenting pressure to deny Christ and abandon the faith, not because we may be physically tortured, but because we live under the assault of prosperity. 
and peace and those that just want us to be quiet. We face the pressure to deny Christ and to abandon the faith in a different but equal way with someone facing persecution. And some among us through the years have abandoned it. And some, apart from God's unique working grace, will. We will not make it through this life with no one leaving the faith. And the question we must ask as we labor to remain connected to Christ and faithful to our calling is will our faith in Christ hold until the end, until the day that we meet Him, or will we abandon the faith along the way? We don't believe, of course, that anyone who truly knows Christ as Savior can lose or abandon their salvation. But is our faith real? Under the pressures that we face, under this relenting assault against our faith, will it prove true? In face of the powers that assault this faith, we come in weakness. We sense the weakness in our bones. And we seek to live as genuine believers. And in this endeavor, Paul turns to Timothy here and he says, in this battle to not be ashamed of the Gospel, in this battle to endure in the faith, let's get to the heart of the matter. He kind of closes it out here as we come to chapter 2, verses 8-13. through 13, And this primary call that we found in chapter 1 and verse 8, to not be ashamed, but rather to suffer for the Gospel. He gets to the heart of the matter here. What is it? Will you persevere in the faith? Will you withstand the powers that assault your faith until the last day? Gloriously, these verses point us not to ourselves, not to our experience. But Paul says, if you intend to endure in the faith unto the end, set your hope first on the mission of Christ. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. And as we work our way down through verse 10, it will be His mission of salvation that becomes our concentration. Remember, Timothy's, how's he reading this? He doesn't say, oh, that's right, Jesus, I forgot about Him. No. In fact, I'm yet to find the place in the Bible that ever uses the word remember that way. It's a figure of speech which means believe in, rest in, focus upon, center your concentration upon Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Savior, Messiah, the one sent by God on a mission of redemption and rescue to save us from sin and God's wrath. Remember this one. That's where we must concentrate. There are two authenticating realities concerning our Savior on which we should focus our faith. Remember Jesus Christ, this One who is risen from the dead, number one, and the offspring of David as preached in my Gospel. First is the victorious resurrection. So we're saying we know these things. It's, it's obvious to remember Jesus Christ. But here's where the roots need to go. Remember, this is a man who is about to die for Christ. Writing to a man who is, who is a pioneer on the front edge of persecution, suffering, and difficulty. What are they talking about between the two of them? And is there some kind of esoteric, secretive discussion about how to endure in the faith? No, he says, remember Jesus rose from the dead. Root yourself in the simplicity of the Gospel. The essence of our hope in this world and the next is the realization that Jesus of Nazareth physically conquered death. 
He did this to prove that He was who He claimed to be. Romans 1, 3 and 4. He did this that God would accept His provision for our salvation. He did this to fulfill His own prophecies and to prove that He was Messiah. So as we renounce fear of man and seek to stand courageously for Christ, we must look for hope in the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection and in the theological meaning that is attached to that historical event. We're not believing in a myth. We're not believing in a story. We're not believing simply in some spiritual continuance of Jesus' memory. But we are trusting in the literal, physical defeat of death by Jesus Christ. And think of it in this context, and in the context of any call to hardship in our lives as a Christian, that call comes always connected to a Jesus Christ who suffered death, who rose from the dead in conquest over His enemies. Every call to suffer for Him is rooted in this victory. Don't forget this, says Paul to Timothy. Remember it. Concentrate on it. Center your focus there. His victorious resurrection. Secondly, His prophesied lineage. He is the offspring of David. Some have thought that's just a throwaway phrase. Paul's quoting somebody else. It doesn't matter here. As we come to understand the New Testament, this matters a lot. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. His claim to be the true Messiah is linked to His lineage prophesied to produce the Messiah. Jesus is the greater Son then who fulfills the typological role of King David in the Hebrew Scriptures. And a repeated emphasis in the New Testament is that Jesus is David's Son. All of this was proclaimed in Paul's Gospel and there's much to it that could be filled in. He just gives it succinctly this summary idea. Do not forget in the sense of focus your attention upon Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, David's greater son in fulfillment of prophecy. For this Gospel, Paul reminds Timothy, verse 9, I am suffering. I am bound with chains as a criminal. For this glorious message, I'm in chains as a criminal. The Greek word speaks of one who is a nasty criminal. Somebody who deserved vicious punishment for their crimes. I'm bound, says Paul, as a criminal. But, verse 9, the Word of God is not bound. What a beautiful phrase. No force on this planet can silence the Word of God to bind to bind it. Nothing can take away its saving power. God's Word is free. Some time ago, William Barclay wrote these words, You can exile a man, but you cannot exile the truth. You can imprison a preacher, but you cannot imprison the Word he preaches. Men cannot kill what is immortal. Even in prison, the Word of God was not bound and Paul knew it. Why is that? How could he say this? Because he believes that the risen and reigning Son of God continues to save sinners. He continues to baptize in the Spirit those who turn to saving faith in Him as they repent of their sins and trust Him as Savior. And so this Word of God, this message of Christ crucified, risen, this reigning Christ, this message continues to permeate the world and nothing can chain it down. I'm bound, but not the Gospel of Christ. 
Therefore, he says to Timothy, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I endure. That means he's facing hardship. He's in prison. There's opposition. The powers of darkness are besetting him on every hand. But I endure. I keep pressing through. I mean, after a while, you might say to Paul, isn't that, I mean, you had enough of this. All of this persecution and difficulty and imprisonment. Maybe it's time to take your ease. No, I endure it all for those who have come to Christ, for those who will come to Christ. Paul imitates Jesus by laying down his life for the elect, for those that have been chosen by God, those that God has chosen to give to Jesus as the great shepherd, sheep whom Jesus calls into His fold, many of whom have not yet responded as we read John chapter 10. For these I labor, says Paul. I suffer. I endure hardship. Now there's a common line that we should consider here, and that's that the doctrine of election, that God would choose people unto salvation, discourages evangelistic zeal. If you really believe that God is the one who ultimately chooses sinners for salvation, why tell anybody about the Gospel? They'll be saved. We don't have to worry about it any longer. Well, anyone who believes that does not understand the doctrine of election and dishonors the memory of the Apostle Paul. Are we to say that Paul was lacking in evangelistic zeal as he writes this? He's in prison, suffering. He's been tortured. He's been left for dead to get the message out to those that God has chosen. See, the problem is, I think, truly, that so often we think when we struggle with election, when God's people struggle with this concept that God chooses, that somehow it relies upon us. And if we will just argue appropriately and we'll convince people appropriately and we will do the right things, then people will respond to the message of Christ. Paul finds his motivation in the fact not that he is going to be convincing, but that God is doing a work through Christ. That He is choosing a people unto Himself. This should not steer us away from evangelistic zeal, but should give us the confidence that someone actually will be saved. Not because of our arguments and not because of our faithfulness, but because Christ is saving people. And Paul says, let me in on that action. I want to proclaim that truth. I don't know who's going to come to Christ as Savior, but I do know it doesn't rely on me. It relies on the choice of God ultimately as people indeed choose Christ as Savior. But it ultimately relies upon His work and His doing. And so I labor to the point of suffering and He will labor to the point of death for those people. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, those who have trusted Christ, those who will trust Christ as Savior. As you see at the end, that is in Christ Jesus. This salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a salvation in relationship with Christ. Paul is introducing people to who Jesus is. Some are responding. And it is a salvation that fits the believer to enter into God's eternal splendor looking at the full idea of salvation. So at this point, Paul closes his extended call to Timothy not to be ashamed, 
but rather to suffer hardship for the gospel by drawing from an existing hymn or poem. It could be that Paul's penning the poem right now, that he is, has worked it up there in prison. It reflects his theology beautifully, verses 11 to 13. But perhaps he's drawn from some existing hymn of, or the like. We don't know the original source. We do know that it strikes at the essence of our fight against the powers that we confront. So if we intend to endure in the faith until the end, where are we going to go? We need to set our hope on the mission of Christ, on the saving work of Jesus through the Gospel, and secondly, to set our hope on the fidelity of Christ. I think that's the general point of this poem that follows in verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, he says, for if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. There's line number one of this poem. If we have died with Him, we will live with Him. If we have died with Him, some people have said, well, that means if we die for Christ, we are martyred. But you'll notice here, it doesn't read that way, does it? The English makes it very clear to us. If we have died with Him. Not if we will die in the future by martyrdom, but if we, living right now, have already died with Christ. It's unmistakable here that Paul is drawing upon his larger theology. If, being a conditional phrase, assumed to be true for the sake of argument, or we might say it this way, since we have died with Christ. He speaks here of the union of the believer with Jesus Christ. When we come to trust Christ as our Savior, in some mysterious sense, we die with Christ to sin. I join the death of Jesus to sin. Now, if that's the case, then we will also live with Him. That is, those who have died with Christ to sin are alive now in Christ, but here the emphasis falls on the future final salvation. We will live with Him through eternity. If we've died with Him to self and to sin, we will be alive forever in His presence, alive in Christ So the source of our hope is our union with Christ through faith in the Gospel. There is life in Christ which we live out every day with hope of eternity. Paul fleshes this out a bit more in Romans chapter 6 where he says, "...we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life." Died with Christ risen with Christ to live in newness of life. This is what is true of the one who endures, of the one who has genuine faith. Now, if we have been truly converted, the focus shifts not to an overweening remembrance of the historical event of our conversion, but to what? But to perseverance, to continuing on in the faith. Where he says, verse 12, if we endure we will also reign with Him. So the point is not, when did you cross over from life into death? Although that is a point, and that's very important. And as we think, am I really enduring and walking in the faith? We will look back to that event, undoubtedly. But the Bible never points us there as the crucial issue. The crucial issue is if I have died with Christ, then I am alive in Christ. And there will be evidence that I am alive in Him, and I will therefore endure in the faith. 
think that's the idea here, verse 12. If we endure, we will reign also with Him. If we endure the hardships of the Christian life, if we endure the assaults against our faith, if we endure as faithful followers of Christ to the end, if we endure through the pressures of sin and temptation, we will ultimately reign with Jesus Christ. One day, the need to endure opposition is going to melt away, Christian. It won't be there anymore. And we'll reign with Christ you see, we suffer hardship now. We suffer at least ridicule and disdain. As a church, we do. As the people of God, we do. As individual Christians faithful to the Gospel, there will be ridicule and disdain that we face in a world hostile to Christ that remains in charge for a season. But let's remember this as we endure. There is coming a day when the powers of this world which are hostile to Christ will be overwhelmed as He returns and conquers and sets up His reign on earth. There will be a radical shift in power when Jesus returns to set up His kingdom. And so we're reminded once again, if we endure, which speaks of hardship and difficulty, we will reign victoriously. We're reminded then that we cannot be popular twice. Either you will be popular in this world, in man's kingdom, or you will be with the majority as one reigning with Christ in His kingdom. We've got to choose our kingdom. And if we endure in the midst of man's kingdom, we will one day reign with Christ in His. What will that look like? The Bible doesn't really flesh this out very much at all for us. We can only imagine what it will mean for us to reign with Christ. But taking the concepts that are given to us and simply the concepts of kingdom and reign with the conquering Messiah, I think generally it will involve implementing and enforcing the rule of Christ on earth, which will be the most beautiful rule that has ever shown itself in this world following the fall in the garden. Christ's rule will be a rule of grace. It will be a rule of mercy. It will be a rule of righteousness and absolute justice. And we will implement and enforce and participate in that rule on this earth. Once the despised, once facing hardship, once ridiculed, once on the outside, now we enter into the rule of Christ. And we say, may Jesus Christ be praised and the whole earth says, Amen and Amen. In other words, those who endure the reign of Satan, remaining faithful to Christ to the end, will live again to reign with Christ on earth. But isn't there honestly another possibility? There is, sadly. And that's that we deny Him. Line number three if we deny Him, He also will deny us. To deny Christ, I think here in this context, if we understand the poem properly, is what we call apostasy. That is, one stops believing. One who professes faith in Christ ceases to believe. Turns away from Jesus and renounces the faith. If we deny Him, He will deny us. 
That is, if you reject Jesus, turn away from the faith and live out your days saying, I do not know the man, Jesus will not speak in your defense before the judgment seat in eternity. As He put it in Matthew 10, whoever denies Me before men, I will also deny before My Father who is in heaven. Jesus will be honest. This is one who never knew Me. There's a warning here to those of us who profess faith in Christ. I think that's the idea. It's if we deny Him. If we who are professing believers in Christ deny Him, He will deny us. If you ever come then to the place where you admit that you no longer trust in Christ as your Savior, He will bear witness before the judgment seat that you are not His child. This is the testimony of the New Testament and it's a warning to us. Further warning to professing believers is that if you come to a place that your lifestyle evidences you have never been transformed by the indwelling Spirit of God, Jesus will confirm in eternity, I never knew you. And this then is the reality that leads us to desire to be a disciplined community. Not simply a friendly, caring community. Though we want to be that certainly. We must be alive as a church to the reality that every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if we are not a disciplined community, we may be confirming as believers those who are going to stand before Jesus, hearing from us on earth, you're a believer, you're a believer, you're a believer, you're one with us, and standing before Jesus who says, I never knew you. We don't want to cooperate in that disaster that is pending for some. We're not God. We can't read hearts. But gently, patiently, persistently, with discipline, we need to seek to understand, are we indeed persevering in the faith? Because there are those who come to a place that deny Christ and will be denied There's obviously here a warning for those who are unbelievers in Christ. Someday, you won't hear this in the media, you won't hear this in our world, but the New Testament announces this fact over and over again. Someday you will stand before Jesus Christ. You'll stand in His presence. You will stand before the One who is the only Savior from God's wrath. You may think there's other ways that you can devise now or then that will allow you to escape the anger of God. There isn't one. There's no such way but Christ. This One who you will stand before will be the only One who made the only payment for the many ways in which you violate the will of God on a daily basis. Let me assure you, when you enter eternity as a sinner, there's nothing more tragic in this life or the next than to hear Christ affirm, this one does not belong to me. I would encourage you, respond today. Even if everybody thinks you are a believer, respond today if you know that you're not. I'm a sinner deserving of God's judgment I turn from my sins and my own self-religion. 
And I trust Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. I'll throw myself upon the work that He alone has accomplished. Come to Him in faith today. You have everything to gain. And you have damnation to avoid. But for those of us who know Christ as Savior, there is yet something to be discussed. And that is our unfaithfulness as believers. This is picked up in the fourth line of the poem, if I understand it properly, as he says, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. If we are faithless, notice here, this is not a future or perfect tense pointing to apostasy, but present tense. If we are now proving to be faithless, there are times when we do not abandon the faith, We do not reject the Gospel, but we prove weak and we prove faithless in our loyalties to Christ. This is the temptation for Timothy. Don't be ashamed of me as these others have because they're ashamed of Christ. Be willing to endure hardship. But there's times when we we prove faithless. Here's a glorious promise, Christian. In such situations... The glorious truth is that Jesus remains faithful to us. That's the God He is. Think of Peter in this situation. This is where we find Peter. Is Peter in the category of the one who denies Christ and is denied by Christ? Well, Peter doesn't say a whole lot, does he, after he's denied Christ. It's Jesus who comes after him. And as Peter responds to the Jesus who searches him out, Peter never says, now wait a minute, Jesus, you and I, we're going to go our own separate ways here. It was fun while it lasted. I walked with you for a period of time, and that was a good part of my life and an interesting part of yours, and a lot of interesting things have happened. But I don't believe in you anymore. You haven't set up the kingdom that you promised to set up the way that I think it should be set up, and I don't have anything more to do with you. That's not what Peter says, is it? He's pretty well silent, which is always saying at every turn as Jesus counsels him, will you have me back? I've been so faithless. I've denied that I even know you because I didn't want to suffer. Would you have me back? What does Jesus say to this fallen, faithless man? Feed my sheep. You're a shepherd of my sheep. He comes back to him. He pursues him. He nurtures him. He brings him along to the point where Peter himself lays down his life and dies for Christ. It's that kind of faithlessness that Jesus matches with faith. When we repent and respond and we come to Him in our humility, seeking His mercy, Jesus always remains faithful. We can never presume upon that that we are saved. If we live a godless and fruitless life, we don't don't then presume upon Christ's faithfulness because we have denied Him. But if we have not denied Him, there is faithfulness in our life. We can know this and root our confidence here. It's not me remaining faithful without end. It's Him remaining faithful without end toward me. He remains faithful. Here's the truth. Jesus Christ will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13. 
Here is the truth. Jesus Christ will never break a promise. 2 Corinthians 1. Here is the truth. Jesus Christ will never lose a sheep that has been entrusted to His care. To those who rejected Him, who denied Him, Jesus said these words, You do not believe because you are not a part of My flock. My sheep hear My voice. And I know them and they follow Me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. No one. We may be faithless. He remains faithful because... He cannot deny Himself. That is, God cannot act in a manner that is inconsistent with His nature. It is God's nature to remain faithful to His purposes and to His promises. How can I know that I will endure to the end in my faith? I can't. Not in myself. But I can put my confidence in the One who offers eternal life to all who come to Him in faith. I can put my confidence in this One who cannot deny Himself. This One who has chosen me, who has given me life, who has called me to Himself, will never fail. No one will be cast out. No one will be forgotten. No one will be lost who comes to Christ for saving grace. And this then, I think, strikes the ideal balance, these last two lines. Verse 12, the last part, if we deny Him, He will also deny us, corrects what? It corrects those Christians who live godless lives, but claim that they were saved because of some religious experience. No, if we deny Him, He will deny us. Those who sin with impunity and deny Jesus will not be saved in the end because of some experience in their past. If we live a life of denial of Christ, He will confirm that we have denied Him and He denies knowing us. But in verse 13, in this fourth line of the poem, this is a correction to those who never have any assurance of salvation in this life because of the existence of indwelling sin. They prove faithless over and again because of sin in their life, and then they are never sure in any way, shape, or form if they know Christ as Savior. Never can we sin with impunity, denying Christ, and think that somehow we'll be saved because of some experience. But as faithless people who sin, we can always have confidence in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It will always be there for us. It will never be exhausted. It will never crack. We're held in His hand securely forever and ever. So He will always love us. He will always restore us to fellowship as we come to Him in repentance as Peter did. That is simply who He is. And that Christian is all that matters. Remember Jesus Christ. That's what matters. Will our faith in Christ hold to the end? Or will we come someday to abandon it? The answer is not to look at ourselves, to look at our experience, to ask whether or not we prove faithless from time to time. The answer 
is to focus on Jesus Christ crucified and risen, the faithful one who cannot deny His promises. If you look to His death and His resurrection in your place, if you continue to heed His Word and believe His promises, you can know that He will remember you as He welcomes you into eternity to reign with Him forever. Our central focus then is to be upon Christ and His Gospel, His mission to save, and His fidelity to His people. That's where my faith remains planted. That is my hope for this life and the next. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we acknowledge as believers in Christ that it is in Christ alone that our hope is found. He is our security, our hope, our confidence. For anyone separated from Christ, we plead with You that You'll bring them to saving faith today and that we might endure as a disciplined body striving to help one another in the faith to persevere, to develop, to grow and to mature, holding one another accountable to Your call on our life, being faithful to lift up, pick up, forgive and encourage. Father, in all of this we bow with thanksgiving as we remember Jesus Christ. May we live a life that hinges on what He has done, is doing, and will do to secure our salvation. Through Christ we pray. Amen.